welcome to Real World Ember, where we interview awesome developers that you might or might not have heard of yet. Today we have Lydia Ocarino, and could you go ahead and tell us about, a bit about yourself? Sure. Um, so I am a relatively new developer, and I work at the front side here in Austin, Texas. And we're a consultancy that work with larger companies that want um, some consulting assistance on Ember and Rails projects. So we kind of specialize in helping larger companies figure out their development workflow and making sure that they're set up for success. So you're saying that the front side, obviously it specializes in code, but it's not just code. No, definitely not. So we also do a lot of contributions to the community. So we host the Ember Meetup. Well, actually, uh, Spiceworks now hosts it, but we still run the meetup, um, the Ember Meetup here in town. That is a good meetup. Yeah, it's an excellent meetup. Yeah, we've got some great people that have been coming for quite a while now. And we also participate in a lot of open source projects. So you may know us from like XSelect. Several of our components have kind of worked their way into sort of normal Ember vernacular now. Right. And you guys just released Ember Impagination, right? Yeah, we did. It's definitely, you know, pre 1.0 release. So we're still tweaking it. We've had a bunch of people test it out already and, you know, submit pull requests, which is awesome. So if you haven't tested it out and you want to give it a try, we're always looking for collaborators. Awesome. Yeah, I uh, haven't used it myself, but I saw Charles's presentation on it and it looks pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's a problem that kind of everybody <laughs> has taken a path at reinventing the wheel on, specifically paginated data where you're fetching smaller sets of data from the server. Mm -hmm. Specifically, we were trying to learn more about how we could use it for infinite scroll. That was our yeah, main, that's a tough main motivation. Yeah, I'm pretty proud of what we came up with. It definitely still needs some fine tuning, but it's working for some people in, in production now. So that's pretty neat. Mm-hmm. And uh, for the listeners, if you're really interested about this, of course, you can go to the GitHub repository, but there's also a front side the podcast episode about it. Yes. Yes. And it's Lydia and Charles and, and uh, Alex, Alex, mm -hmm. yes, talking about all the technical things they did with it. Yes, it's a pretty nerdy one. <laughs> <laughs> I think the listeners like that. Good. You've been programming, you said, uh... Just a couple of years, right? Yeah. So I'm about two and a half years into my professional career as a developer. But you had a, at least one professional career before that. Yes. In fact, I had um, maybe a couple of past lives before I landed in programming. Do you want me to just kind of talk about that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because uh, a lot of programmers, well, previously, it's more and more becoming like your situation uh, but previously, a lot of programmers would come out of college, get their programming job, or not even go to college because they've been programming since they're 13. But now with the emphasis on, like, there's so much work that needs to be done, and it's not just algorithms. Right. Yeah, I'm definitely a career changer. So I started out actually as an architect. That's what my degree is in from UT. And I spent five years getting that degree. It's sort of the equivalent of a, a bachelor's and a master's degree smushed together. Uh -huh. And I had a really great experience in school. I really thought that was what I was going to do professionally, like for life. And along the way, someone forgot to mention that the building industry had completely tanked and there were absolutely no jobs in that industry when I graduated. <laughs> so I had to get a little bit creative about how to apply the school the the skills that I learned in school to something completely and totally different. 
I was fortunate enough to land at a tech sales company here in town called SHI uh, that was pretty small at the time. There were only about 40 employees at the office when I started there. Uh And I started as a sales rep, which was a completely just 180. (laughs) Right. So at that point, it was difficult to combine those skills. Yeah. I mean, actually, so let me back up. What you learn in design school is... You know, I took a lot of physics classes, I took a lot of math classes, took a lot of design classes. But what you really learn how to do in any type of design school is take big nebulous problems and break them down into smaller pieces that you can work with. That sounds very familiar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so as it turns out, it actually becomes hugely applicable to most things you want to do, mm-hmm. particularly any type of project-based work. Right. Um, so you basically already learned all the uh, thinking parts of programming. Right. You just didn't know the syntax. Exactly. In fact, there's even a phase in design development for architecture called programming, where you're taking you know, the big idea of what your building is and breaking it down into individual spaces and the individual systems that need to work together. And you're laying things out on paper over and over and over again, trying different iterations to come up with. So what do they mean when they say programming there? So they actually mean the process of figuring out how a bunch of disparate parts work together as a whole Uh and how you're going to implement that. Right. So like creating a program for completing this. Right. Yeah. Huh. I didn't know it was the parallels were that strong. Yeah. It's actually uh, pretty interesting. Anytime someone hears that I, uh, you know, started out in architecture, the first question I always get is, have you read that pattern languages book? (laughs) (laughs) I think I might've asked you that before. Yeah. For some reason, I guess it's something that is studied in a lot of CS course loads. But, you know, we definitely studied pattern languages and uh, vernacular languages and things like that in school. So, there, yeah, there's a ton of stuff that's been directly applicable to my programming experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the reason people ask that is because, well, there's the Gang of Four book about pattern languages. Mm-hmm. And they were directly inspired by the uh, Christopher something pattern language book. Yep. Christopher Alexander. Yeah. yeah. All right. So uh, even though you weren't in programming, you were learning a lot of things that were extremely applicable. Right. And what about your sales career? What did you learn there that was applicable? Right. So my sales career took sort of three phases. Um, I started out as a salesperson. And anyone in any job anywhere should work in sales at least once in your life. Because the communication skills that you gain from being on the phone talking to strangers every day Uh is completely invaluable. And it's one of the things that I didn't learn in architecture school that I really wish I had. I would have approached it completely differently. I was always under the impression that, you know, my work would speak for itself. (laughs) Um, And that's really just not the way things work. You have to be able to express ideas that are not – that haven't been implemented yet. Uh, Yes, I learned that uh, about a year and a half ago. Yeah, to someone that maybe doesn't have the same type of expertise that you have. And it's Uh, a really tricky thing to do. But it's benefited my programming career to have worked in sales uh, because I find that I'm often, you know, put in positions where I'm asked to speak in meetings or I'm asked to be kind of the uh, communication layer between the technical people and the business people. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's been really helpful to me, both in furthering my career and, you know, obtaining more responsibility, but also just in being able to understand the needs and problems of users, not Uh just from a technical standpoint, but from kind of a personal standpoint. Right. So you don't start with the solution like programmers sometimes do. Right. 
But do you spend time talking to the customers first or how does that work for you? That's definitely my preferred method. I'm definitely a question asker. Uh (laughs) I really like to try to help clients define the problem by trying to narrow in on exactly what their pain points are, exactly what they're really trying to solve before Mm -hmm. we dive into anything that has specifics that can be sort of visually addressed or technically addressed. Uh, Once you get into the weeds there, it starts to become kind of difficult to have productive conversations about the bigger picture of what you're working on. Right. And so I I definitely, yeah, I definitely, I never actually really put those two together, but that's absolutely where I got that from was from sales. I (laughs) I like to gather requirements by asking a ton of questions at the very beginning and figuring out what's important to the client before I start working on it. And that's not as simple as just asking them, hey, uh, what do you want? Definitely not. They usually don't actually know what they want. <laughs> yeah. that <laughs> I found that uh, if they're already technical, they have a better chance of being able to communicate that directly, but it's still a pretty low odds. Right. What are some of the techniques that you use to understand their issues? So first, I like to ask them to just prepare whatever it is that they, uh-huh. you know, just kind of their first stab at like what they're interested in having done. Yeah. And I like to have that in writing. I sort of would prefer that that be either, you know, in a ticketing system or in an email or something that's written down in their own words. And then I dissect that into pieces and I sort of start to categorize them and assign them priority levels. And then I will check back with them and say, this is what I understood this piece to mean. This is what I understood this piece to mean. This is the one that seemed really important to you. Can you elaborate on that? And this is the stage that in design school they would call programming. Actually, this would be part of like requirements gathering okay. as well. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's it's the same thing. You're gathering requirements for the project. Uh-huh. The programming is where you actually start to think of what the required pieces are to execute and how they fit together. Got it. Yeah. All right. So you're uh, getting it all written down and you're pushing them to prioritize. Right. Right. Because uh, they can't want everything equally. Right. Usually they start off wanting everything. Equally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but which do they want more equally than all the others? Exactly. Yeah. And then, you know, a lot of times they'll realize that one piece is more important to them than the other. And it may be that they want to investigate that one piece further before starting in on something specific. Mm-hmm. And then uh, once you've done that initial requirements gathering, do you proceed in a more agile way? Mm, that's a good question. Agile is such a nebulous term now. (laughs) Yes, I realized that right after I asked it. (laughs) I mean, I would say that we take an iterative approach. Okay. Um, We like to do small pieces. Well, actually, I do a combination. I like to start out with the big picture and know sort of where things are going to get plugged into the big picture and then start with one piece of that and work in iterations of that one piece. And then once that one piece is in a good good spot, move on to the next piece and the next piece and the next piece. Right. So you get the diagram and then you start like building each individual Lego. Exactly. But only one Lego at a time. I like to do one Lego at a time. And then you reevaluate the big picture after that piece is completed because a lot of times you've uncovered a lot more additional requirements or scope once you've completed that one piece. Um, so I like to do kind of, you know, a test run with one piece start to finish from design to implementation to deployment and make sure that that whole process works as expected and that the outcome is what the client is interested in or what's expecting. 
Right. So it's like a, uh, I think I've heard it called a tracer bullet where you just like go all the way through once and then you see how close you are to the target. Absolutely. And then correct. Mm -hmm. And build out the complexity. Right. Yeah. It's a great method. All right. Uh, Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. (laughs) Sure. So uh, I also wanted to talk to you about your experience because you started programming with a boot camp, right? I did. Uh, Can you tell me more about that, how that was? Sure. Uh, So in between sales and the boot camp, I had worked my way up to being the operations manager um, at that sales company. Uh And I was working every day with the developers on our internal tools and doing a lot of kind of pseudocode and a lot of kind of logical planning of some enhancements to the programs that we were using every day. And I realized sitting there (laughs) waiting for someone else to do the work with my hands completely tied that I was absolutely on the wrong side of that. (laughs) (laughs) And I really wanted to be coding it myself um, (laughs) to the extent that I was like building things with InfoPath and building things (laughs) in SharePoint that should not be built with SharePoint. And that was really like the main red flag that I needed to maybe make a career adjustment and um, go back. I wonder how many people have similar experiences before coming to coding. I think, I mean, at least judging from the people that were in my cohort in school, it was a lot of people that either had kind of the entrepreneurial spirit and were feeling limited by the fact Mm -hmm. that they couldn't implement the things that they were, you know, envisioning or people that had come from semi-related verticals Mm -hmm. that wanted to specialize more um, in coding. Yeah. I mean, my situation was uh, similar to yours. This is why I asked the question, because I was wanting to do two things. One was like automate a science machine, (laughs) a laser. Oh, wow. And the other was to make a math education game. And I looked around and I thought, programmers are really expensive. Uh, I will not be able to afford one on a physicist salary. Right. And so I started learning. Yep. And it's a wholly achievable goal. Yeah. And especially depending on what you want to do with it. Uh, you know, we had some people come through our our cohort that really uh, needed to be able to do some advanced marketing things with coding. And they were able to leave the program and immediately go implement that and start working on the project that they needed to work on. And then we had a lot of people that were, you know, looking to dive deeper into backend code or mm-hmm. um, DevOps type stuff. Uh, we kind of so had the there were some that had a their own startup in mind. Yes, several or their own actually. business in mind. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. Yep. Hmm. Yeah, because I thought like uh, the boot camp. Uh, I typically think of it as it's three parts. It's the actual skills as well as a network of fellow coders and a sort of stamp of approval. Right. As in like, this person is hireable. Right. It's a credential. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah, if they're doing their own thing immediately afterwards, then they only really get one and a half of those three. Yep. <laughs> and I think they actually realized that pretty quickly into the program that maybe some self-paced options would have fit their goals better. Uh-huh. However, you know, the... The added accountability and the community uh, that encourages you to keep learning at a boot camp is, yeah. you know, hugely beneficial uh, if you're having trouble finding the time or the motivation to sit in front of a computer screen by yourself with no human interaction and no one to bounce ideas off of or check your work. It's definitely yeah. – a, if you're a communal learner, boot camps mm-hmm. are, are an awesome alternative to self-paced options. Definitely. And uh, 
Right. So you got into the boot camp and this was the first session of that boot camp, right? So I attended Maker Square when it was just in Austin and it was the very first cohort. They actually didn't even have a space um, (laughs) when I handed them my check. (laughs) <laughs> so I was real pleased to find out that they weren't actually scam artists. Um, oh, good. That was a relief. Yeah. Your check was probably used to rent the space. It was. It, it <laughs> definitely was. Um, and to hire the first instructors. <laughs> and, you know, we got the guinea pig discount to attend the first class, which was uh-huh. great for me because it actually lowered some of the the risk factor in attending financially. Yeah. And, yeah, we – let's see. When I went, it was 10 weeks. And it was eight hours a day for five days a week. And we covered Ruby on Rails, a little bit of JavaScript, HTML, CSS, SAS, Git and GitHub, and deploying to Heroku, which is a lot to cover in 10 weeks. It is. And I I think they actually, you know, took a lot of the feedback from our first course to refine the second course. And they did that for the third one and the fourth one. Did Um, they, so they cut back on the smaller things like Git and GitHub or? No, actually, I think particularly based on our feedback once we were placed in jobs, those particular skills are immediately applicable in the workplace. That's true. Yeah, that would be a bad one to cut. Yeah. And were some of the distinguishing factors between, you know, a recent CS grad and someone that's come out of a boot camp. Normally, you could be plugged directly into someone else's you know, development cycle and know how to do pull requests and <laughs> know, know how to. Being able to plug right in is remarkably valuable for a business. Yep. Yeah. So no, I don't think they trimmed back on those. I think what they ultimately ended up doing was narrowing the scope of the content to a single language. So mm-hmm. um, I believe they now only do JavaScript. Um, so I think they do like kind of a node angular track now. Uh-huh. And they're, they've in the past year been acquired by Hack Reactor. So uh-huh, so they're all converging. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think Maker Square still is having is still, you know, decision maker power uh, there, but they're sharing a lot of the curriculum content. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. And yeah, fitting two languages in there is really difficult. Yeah. I know uh, I visited Turing School and their program is nine months. Wow. And they were teaching two pro- languages, but now they've actually split it up into two different programs, even at nine months. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So it's easier to get really good at one thing than to get really good at two things. Yeah. I mean, certainly the scope of a boot camp is essentially a survey course. Mm-hmm. You're being exposed to topics and um, vocabulary and strategies and patterns and... Uh, you're getting to work with them in a project-based scenario. Mm-hmm. And then you're expected to go refine those skills and research them further afterwards. So it's certainly not an expectation that you go to a boot camp and you're a fully baked developer when you come out the other end. You're certainly hireable and you're certainly able to contribute in a meaningful way to a development team quickly. But there's a lot left to learn. And it's really on your shoulders to make sure that you're continuing your education once you graduate. Yeah. And so how was your first job after that? Mm, How was my very first job? Uh, My very (laughs) first job was at a teeny, tiny, tiny startup. Um, I was employee number three. Uh Uh-huh. So did you get a lot of uh, mentoring there? So um, I would say that that was actually probably the piece that was lacking the most in my first position and something that I would have screened for better, knowing what I know now. (laughs) (laughs) 
I was the only person working in the technology that I was working in, which happened to be Ember. Uh-huh. And I had had approximately six days of JavaScript experience. <laughs> Uh, so it was definitely a dump you in the deep end and trial make by sure fire. You don't drown. Yep, sort of situation, yeah. <laughs> which was a great way to learn really quickly, and not a great way to learn correctly. Uh huh. Well, uh, I saw some of your code. It's pretty good. Well, thank so, you. So <laughs> I don't know whether that's more a testament to your skills or the Ember community. Uh, I would definitely say that I had a good amount of help along the way. <laughs> and actually, the second job that I had after graduation, um, so I worked at that first place for about six months, uh-huh. which was a good experience. And um, I'm glad that I worked there. And I'm especially glad that someone took me seriously enough to pay me to be a developer. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because that's really the very first goal that you have out of school is to make sure that someone will vouch for you. Yeah. And someone can be a good referral for you to the next place. Mm-hmm. And the next place I landed was a nonprofit called Communication Service for the Deaf. Mm-hmm. And that was an absolutely wonderful experience with fantastic mentoring. And so I grew a lot as a developer in, in that time span. I worked there for about a year and a half. Mm-hmm. So you grew a lot there and you got the good mentoring. Yeah. And uh, now you're currently working at the front side. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've worked there as well. It's fantastic mentoring. Yes. So it sounds sort of like you climbed the mentoring ladder. I did, yes. Uh, And it was wholly intentional. I Uh absolutely loved my job at CSD. And I would, you know, even love to return there someday. It was a fantastic work experience for me. However, I did feel like I needed to work side by side with people that were considerably more senior than I was in the technology that I was working on. And there really is no better place in Austin than the front side to go sit next to somebody that is super senior (laughs) in the technology (laughs) stack that I'm interested in working in and that really truly believes in fostering the development of junior developers and and mid-level developers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I know the front side, are they hiring right now? We are hiring. Yes. We are definitely looking to expand our team, all different kinds of roles, actually. So junior developers and senior developers? Yep. All right. I know uh, people will be excited to hear that, especially <laughs> the junior developer part. Yeah, I would say that for us, it's definitely a cultural fit mm-hmm. that we're looking for. So, you know, while we'd love to have senior mid-level developers, junior developers, we're really more interested in people that have kind of the same philosophies about community and contributing to open source and learning and then sharing that learning with other people. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And being proactive. Yeah. And being proactive and being fun-loving people that we want to sit next to all day. Yeah. That is important. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Uh, Is there anything else that you want to share with people? I mean, man, we just ran through, (laughs) we just ran through a ton of stuff. We did. Yeah. (laughs) Um, No, I mean, I'm looking forward to seeing people at Ember Conference. So that's kind of my my next big thing. (laughs) All right. Yeah. It was awesome last year and I'm looking forward to it this year. Yeah. All right. So if you guys are looking for a job in Austin, then the front side is one of the best places you can go. Absolutely. Love to have you. (laughs) All right. Then I'll see you at Inverconf. See ya. This is the end of the show, but here's a message from our sponsor. Our sponsor who happens to be me. So I run emberscreencast.com. If you're an intermediate level developer, then this site is for you. 
So you've read your introductory book and you're ready to get started, but you're not quite into reading the source code yet. So I go and I explain some of the basics, but I also explain cool add-ons and some intermediate to advanced topics as well. So go ahead and check out emberscreencast.com. Two screencasts released every week for the intermediate Ember developer. I hope to see you there.